0: Just before I left to come to service this morning, I asked my wife if I could borrow her wall calendar, and so I brought it with me. How many of y'all have a wall calendar at home of some sort or other? And uh, we use them for different things, don't we? We use them to mark time. Some of us put an X on the day when it's over, every day. How many of y'all do that? You X, Put the X's on your wall calendar. Some of y'all do that. We use them to mark time. We use them to plan time. What am I going to do this week? And we sort of write down, I'm going to do this on this day. I'm going to do this on this day. And we sort of plan our week using calendars. I tell you, one of the things that we probably do with calendars without even realizing it more than anything else is we use calendars to count down to a special day or event, don't we? If we're anticipating your birthday... And you're a kid, you, you usually know how many days are left until your birthday or till Christmas or to some other special holiday. And, and so when I pick up the calendar and I look through it, I, I, I look at and I see special dates, you know, I'm looking at May and um, there's Mother's Day. And we know about Mother's Day, what we should do on Mother's Day, right? And you go to June and there's Father's Day and you go to July, there's the fourth of July. We all know what to expect on those various days. You know, as I look through the calendar, though, what if I turned to a particular date, let's say in August, let's say August 18th, okay, I'm just picking August 18th, and all of a sudden I looked at the calendar, and on August 18th it said, end of the world. Now suddenly I would be in countdown mode, wouldn't I? I'd be marking the days until the end of the world, and you know people have done that, whenever they thought the world was gonna end. In 1910, Halley's Comet appeared in the evening skies. People were scared to death because in 1881, a scientist had discovered that in the tail of the average comet, there's a cyanide-like gas. And the Earth in 1910 was gonna pass through the tail of Halley's Comet. And and on the front page of the New York Times in 1910, they published an article speculating that everybody was probably gonna die. And it caused widespread panic. Most of us, many of us, are old enough to remember January 1st, 2000. What happened on January 1st, 2000? What didn't happen? Y2K. You know, because of a computer glitch, people were just certain that on January 1st, 2000, computers couldn't handle it and uh, systems were going to shut down in business and municipalities and basic services and groceries and banks and everything was just going to fail. And people packed their basements and prepared for survival type experiences, and, and people loaded their weapons and they were ready to survive the Y2K crisis. In 1843, a New England farmer named William Miller predicted that the end of the world was going to happen on April 23rd, 1843. Thousands of people took his word for it, sold their belongings. And when that day came, they literally went out on hillsides expecting Jesus to come. And he didn't. And a lot of people lost a lot of their wealth and their possessions. This has happened repeatedly. Harold Camping predicted the end of the world, May twenty-first, two 2011. Radio preacher, it didn't happen. He figured his numbers were wrong. He predicted another date in October 2011. The end of the world didn't happen. He retired after that. One of his disciples, Chris McCann, after the last blood moon, predicted October 7th, last fall, was going to be the end of the world. We're still here. And so as we we think about the end of the world, people react in different ways. With Harold Camping, with William Miller, people went and prepared for the end by selling all that they had, by expecting truly that that was the day that it was going to happen, And it dramatically affected the way that they live. We've been studying the little book of 1 Peter, who talks to us about suffering and how Christians can survive suffering, how to think about suffering. But he also talks to us about that final day. The title of this morning's message is Following Jesus in the Final Days. For June and July, we've been studying 1 Peter. We're coming to the end of the book, moving into the last chapter next week, but today, We're in chapter 4, verse 7. Here is what Peter writes. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, now I want to stop there. He says, The end of all things is at hand. How do you react to the statement that the end of all things is here? It's arrived. Do you go and sell all your belongings? Do you go and sit on a hillside waiting for a specific date? Is that what was in Peter's mind? Did he have a date on a calendar in mind? Well, no, he didn't. In fact, Peter was not making a prediction of when the end would come. Of all people, he knew what Jesus had said. In Acts 1-7, when they were asked if this was the end, if this was the time where Jesus was going to come and establish his kingdom, Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Peter wasn't making a prediction, but he was making an observation. When the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, Jesus had been raised up. He had promised the Holy Spirit would come down. And when the Holy Spirit would come, he would indwell every one of his followers, and he would be for them all that Jesus would be if he were here in person. The Holy Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost on that day you remember the story the Holy Spirit came the disciples gathered together were filled with an exuberant joy as what appeared to be a flame of fire settled on each one they spoke in tongues other languages literally other languages poured out into the streets and people heard them preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language like a United Nations on the day of Pentecost Peter hearing comments that people were saying, these people are nuts, they've been drinking something, they, they've been taking some kind of drug, something's messed up. He came back and he said, no, these people aren't drunk. This is Peter preaching. The same Peter who wrote this letter. And he says this in Acts 2.16, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. In the last days, Joel said, God would pour out his spirit, and he said, this thing that you're witnessing on the day of Pentecost, this is that prophecy being fulfilled. The last days are here. And they have been here since the day of Pentecost. You and I are truly living in the last days. And what Peter's doing in making this observation in chapter 4, verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand, He's not making a prediction of when it's going to happen. He's saying you need to live, though, with the reality that it is going to happen, and you need to take your calendar, and you need to understand you don't know where that day is on the calendar, but you need to be in a countdown mode. You need to be in a countdown mode. Teach us to number our days, the psalmist writes, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And and in telling us that, we're told to take time very seriously we're not to treat it lightly we're not to um, to waste it but we are to look at time from the perspective of the end that the end is coming in verse 6 that we read last week we saw that he's talking about a final judgment people who criticize Christians now who reject Christian practices who who ridicule us who are think we're strange because we don't do what they do Uh, god is going to get the last word peter explains that in chapter four verses five and six but now how are christians supposed to live how are we supposed to respond to the fact that we're in a countdown and there is a final day coming how do we follow jesus in the final days well that's what the word therefore points to but the end of all things is at hand therefore Therefore, and he's about to tell you and me how we should live. More specifically, I'm going to try to condense this into five basic practices that you and I need to go to school on if we're to follow Jesus the way that the Bible teaches us to follow him in these last days that you and I are living in. Far from going and selling all we have and sitting on a hillside waiting on a specific day for Jesus to come, we are called to live in a very specific way. What do we need to go to school on during these final days? Here's the first practice, number one: the practice of prayer. The practice of prayer. Look again at verse seven. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, panic. Is that what he says? <laughs> no. The end of all things that is hand is at hand. Therefore, go and make predictions and all kinds of end time charts and. And go on a speaking circuit and teach these things. No, he doesn't say that. The end of all things is at his hand, therefore, sell your things and go sit on a hill and watch for the second coming. He doesn't say that. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. To be serious means to use your mind, to be watchful is the opposite of being drunk. Literally, it means to be sober. Be fully alert. Be paying attention in your prayers. But what kind of praying is that? What are you praying for when you're in this countdown mode to the end of the world? Well, Peter, who had heard Jesus speak, Peter, who had heard Jesus talk about the end of the world, he remembered a very specific time, I believe, where Jesus spoke of prayer And the final day he put the two things together and we find this in Luke 21 verse 34 in Luke 21 34 Jesus said to you and me be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation that means waste Uh, dissipation would be like goofing off not treating time with care or with any kind of gravity Don't let your heart be weighted down with goofing off and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Be on your guard so that day doesn't come on you like a trap. What happens in a trap? You're walking along, you're not paying attention, and boom, you're caught. And the significance of that is if in context he's talking about the final judgment. I don't want to walk into the final judgment having been goofing off at the moment that Jesus returns living for months and months and months, not paying attention to the Holy Spirit, not praying, not listening to Him, not walking with Him. He says, be on your guard. Don't don't let that come on you like a trap because at that moment when you're trapped, there's no second chance. There's no going back and doing it over again. He says, be on your guard. Verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying, here we go, that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray. Now, should I pray for God to come and work in Wynn Baptist Church and the community of Wynn? Absolutely. Should I be an intercessor for others who have needs? And should I pray for them? Absolutely. But Jesus isn't talking about praying for God to come or praying for intercession. At this moment, he's saying, I want you to pray for you. I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to be focused on some aspect of you that you desperately need help with. What is it? Strength. Pray for strength. To escape what's coming the people who are goofing off who are drunk who are burdened with worries and so what's happening is he says these things are like enemies to your soul distractions keeping you from realizing there's a countdown taking place causing you not to be serious about your spiritual life causing you to take spiritual things and treating them flippantly like they don't matter like it's no big deal if I pray today or I don't pray today or seek him today or don't seek him today or walk in his spirit or don't walk in his spirit. I'm taking a break. He says, be on your guard against that, pray. God, give me strength to be focused, to be alert, to not waste a single minute of my life. The first practice, he says, that you and I need to go to school on his prayer. And when Peter talks about it, he's thinking, I believe, about what Jesus said to do specifically, how he wants you and me to pray at the end of time. There's a second practice that we need to go to school on, and that's the practice of love. The practice of love. The first is prayer. The second one is love. Look at verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins, above all things, means this is the first priority. This should be the most important thing. Whatever else you do as a Christian, whatever else you do at Wind Baptist Church, whatever you do this week, let this be your number one priority. I'm going to fervently love my brothers and sisters in Christ. To love fervently means to not give up, to not quit. To be persistent, relentless in the practice. Why? Why do we do this? Because love will cover a multitude of sins. Boy, this raises all kinds of questions for me. Whose sins are we talking about? Well, I think he's talking about my sins. I think he's talking about your sins. That we should love one another fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. Whose sins? My sins and your sins. You see, it's really easy when there's suffering, when there's pressure for you and I to make mistakes, to say things we shouldn't say, to do things we shouldn't do. And in that day and time, you may even have had circumstances where people were saying things to the point of even denying Jesus. In fact, we know in church history this happened, where Christians were threatened, and some of them buckled, some of them caved. And the church sometimes was very, very hard on those Christians that denied Christ at that critical moment. Peter says, look, you got to love one another fervently. And I think if he was talking to them, and he was preaching this passage, he would say, look, I know something about what happens when when the hate of the world comes around and grabs you. You know, Jesus said the whole world's going to hate you because it hated me. If you're following me, then that hate that walks around the world is going to come and grab you. And Peter, when Jesus was arrested, to his credit, followed at a distance, didn't he? He follows Jesus, Who's under arrest into a courtyard where there are other people there who hate Jesus. Who are mad about him. Who want him dead. And Peter's standing there amongst all these people who hate. And Jesus is across the way. He can't talk to him, but he can see him. And at that moment, a little girl turns to Peter and says, you were with him. And suddenly, that that hatred begins to reach out for Peter. And, and he has a choice at that moment. Do I, uh, do I follow Jesus into this place of hate? Or do I step back? Do I step back? And you know what he did? He denied Christ. Not once, but three times. Why? Because the hate was reaching for him. And in the face of that suffering, in the face of that hate, in the face of that persecution, he did something he regretted. And what did Jesus do the next time he saw Peter? Did he go to him and say, boy, you blew it that time did he do that you say Peter I don't know if if we can keep this up you're going to have to go find somebody else to follow Jesus didn't do any of that did he he came up to him he didn't even bring it up but in the wisdom of God he goes to Peter and he says Peter do you love me and how many times did he ask him the question the same number of times that Peter denied Jesus Jesus said do you love me you love me do you love me i believe peter was thinking about that at that moment when he writes these words above all things have fervent love for one another like jesus did for me for love will cover a multitude of sins when other christians blow it i can focus on who they what they what they have done i can write them off i can focus on their wrong instead of their worth i can focus on their sin instead of the savior who died for their sin Peter says, look, when times are tough, what Christians need is not a beatdown from other Christians. They need to be loved. Fervently. Fervently. There's a third practice we need to go to school on, and that's the practice of hospitality. We need to practice prayer. We need to practice love, and the practice of hospitality. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. The Bible is so practical at that point, isn't it? Any of you have trouble when somebody just shows up unannounced at your house? He says, without grumbling, (laughs) be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Guests eat all the groceries, don't they? (laughs) They eat up energy. They eat up the time maybe that you plan for other things. In the early church, Christians didn't meet in buildings like this building, They didn't have them for the first 250 years of church history. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have aisles to walk down. They didn't have any of that. Where did they meet? Homes. They met in people's homes. And so unless someone exercised hospitality, the the church never was going to (laughs) meet. Somebody had to exercise hospitality. Love not only forgives, but love freely offers friendship. And the most practical way that's offered is with hospitality. In a world filled with hate, Peter says we need to go to school on hospitality. Now, some of you may do that very easily. Maybe you were raised in an environment where your family was always opening the doors to other people, and it comes very easily to you. Others, it may not be so much. I want to draw a distinction this morning between the word entertaining and hospitality because entertaining is very different from hospitality. Entertaining people, is very different. And, and one of the reasons some of us struggle with hospitality is because we have this idea that hospitality is the same thing as entertaining someone. If Jim's coming to my house and I'm focused on entertaining my guests, then my house has to be spotless, doesn't it? Right, how many of y'all think that's, you know, house has to be spotless? Um, the table has to be set just right? The food has to be prepared perfectly. All those things have to happen before I can have someone in the house. If someone shows up unannounced, well, I might start grumbling. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's entertaining. Entertaining puts the focus on the host. Hospitality puts the focus on the guest. What do they need? And seeking to meet that need using your resources whether it's a place to stay, a meal, a warm reception, a cup of coffee and conversation. Hospitality may be hosting a group in your home. They can also be baking something and taking it by. It can be dropping in to visit with someone, seeing how they are doing. It can be listening to someone's story, their life. It can be creating a safe place for someone who has no place that's safe, becoming someone's family when they don't have a family, offering friendship when they don't have friends. And he's saying... Just do it. Be hospitable. Be open to the Holy Spirit. Just do what he brings to mind. This week, Gail and I went to a restaurant. Uh, Outside of Wynn, we went to a restaurant. And um, we had the unusual experience of going to a restaurant as a bunch of different friends walked in to the same restaurant. Uh, Old friends and one couple came in they went and sat down another couple came in they went and sat down there were several of them and and it was really cool to see these friends in the course of it unexpected not planned one of those and they knew, would not admit that they did it one of them bought our meal ha, that was hospitable that was cool but then afterwards we went by to speak to one of the couples and they had kind of gone off in a quiet corner And I just intended to say hello. And Gail and I walked up to their table to say hello. They insisted that we sit down. We'd already eaten. Uh, They were in the midst of their quiet dinner together. They said, no, 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 sit down. They sat down. They started asking questions. You know, how are you, Don? How are you, Gail? What's happening with this? What's happening with that? And they talked to us. And you know what happened in that moment? That is hospitality. That's hospitality. That's not entertaining. The focus was on on us. We were the recipients of it. And what a blessing. Hospitality takes on as many shapes and forms as the Holy Spirit leads you to do. But he says the practice of hospitality. In a world that is filled with hate, hospitality stands out. There's a fourth practice. Five practices we need to go school on. Prayer, love, hospitality. The fourth one is the practice of ministry. Ministry. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Minister it, the gift, to one another. That's what we're told to do. That's what we need to do for each other here at Win Baptist Church. Now, there's a lot of good teaching on spiritual gifts. I want to give you some basic principles, really just the ones that Peter gives us. They're surprisingly simple. He says, as each one has received a gift. What does that mean? Every person here that knows Jesus has at least one spiritual gift. You have a a gift, which means that you have a a calling, a, a ministry to carry out. Are you? He says that you and I need to go to school in this business of doing ministry. How do I do ministry? I do it using the gift that God has given to me. As each one has received a gift, that word received means it wasn't something I came up with. I didn't say, well, well, God, let me come into your your bookstore on spiritual gifts. I want that one. I'll, I'll take that one. I'll take that. No, I received the gift that I have from God. He sovereignly chooses what gift or gifts that you have. And understanding that you have a spiritual gift, what does he say to do? He says, be a good steward of it. Minister that gift to other people. You know, in the old days, when we first began learning about spiritual gifts uh, as believers in this country 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there was a lot of emphasis on gift discovery. On finding out what your gift is. And you would find out what your gift is, it was almost like completing or receiving some kind of an award. You'd say, well, I have the gift of XYZ, I write it down, I put it on the wall, gift of that that's my gift and what i what i would fail to understand in that kind of teaching is that a gift is not meant to be merely enjoyed by the one who's holding the gift the gift is meant to be ministered it enables you and me to do ministry to one another ministry is not just what the staff does all week ministry is what we do for one another as we take the spiritual gift that god has given to you and me and we minister that gift to each other. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this ministry? When I used to teach people about spiritual gifts, um, one of my assignments in another church years ago was to help people discover their ministry. And I found that the best way to discover what your ministry is, is to do ministry. Just to go do stuff, try things, say yes, get involved. Uh, join in. And as you do that, your giftedness becomes obvious to all, including yourself. How are we supposed to do ministry? Look at verse 11. Contrary to the elaborate classifications of gifts that some teachers come up with, Peter classifies all spiritual gifts in the two types. Very simple. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. If anyone speaks, if anyone ministers. Two classifications. Gifts of speaking, gifts of serving. Things that we say, things that we do. And Peter says, whatever spiritual gift you have comes into one of those two categories. Now, how do you do those gifts? Well, this is what's really remarkable about what Peter teaches here. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. An oracle was someone you would go in, and they were kind of a, um, someone, as we use modern expression, I'm not saying this is what we do, okay, but when someone was an oracle, they were supposedly possessed by some goddess or god, and they would speak what that god was wanting them to speak, he says, when you speak, you should speak as if God is speaking. When you're in ministry and you're ministering to someone with your words, you speak the words that God gives. You speak as if he was speaking. Boy, that takes a load off, doesn't it? That really means that if you don't know what to say, you shouldn't say anything. But as God brings things to mind, then you speak that. He goes on, says something very similar about ministry. If anyone ministers has a gift of serving, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. I don't minister in my own strength. I minister with the power that he supplies. So when I don't feel like it, when when I feel drained, when I'm at the end of my resources, and yet I know I'm called to do ministry in a given spot, what should I do? There's a way of stepping out by faith and saying, God, I believe you've called me to do ministry in this situation. And so I'm trusting you to give me, to supply to me, everything needed to do what you've called me to do in this moment. Gifts of speaking, gifts of serving. How do we do it? We do it with what God gives us to do it. But then why do we do it? Well, the last part of verse 11 tells us that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When I speak, people come They say, wow, that was really good. What should I do in my heart? I should say, hey, it's about Jesus. Whatever he gives you to say, whatever he gives me to say, it's not to call attention to us, but it's to call attention to him. When we serve, if God blesses that, there's a supernatural result. God uses you. God uses you to bless someone. To God be the glory and praises to him the fifth practice we need to go to school on during the final days the practice of suffering the practice of suffering now this whole book has been about suffering hasn't it I've said each week that if you're a person who's experiencing problem after problem after problem after problem after problem problem in your life this books for you because he wrote it so you would be encouraged so you know how to handle suffering now in this passage from verses 12 to 19 He says a lot about suffering. Much of it is a repetition, and it's really part of a conclusion of the book. Peter's sort of rehashing some some basic teaching that he's been doing all the way through his book. I want to highlight just three lessons from these verses as we close. Number one, in practicing suffering, expect to be tested. Expect to be tested. When suffering comes, treat it as a test. Verse 12 Beloved, do not think it's strange, don't be surprised, concerning the fiery trial, which means it hurts, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you or to test you. Don't be surprised by this, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's a test. When we saw that in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he talked about the test that suffering brings to our faith. You remember that? that when suffering comes into our life, when persecution comes, trouble, difficulty, hardship, God is doing something with our faith. And we saw when we studied chapter 1 that He's he's proving our faith and He's purifying our faith. He proves our faith to show that it's real, (laughs) that it's there, that it even exists. Because when we're in trouble, that's usually when we have to reach out in faith and say, God, I trust you in the midst of this. So He's proving our faith. He's also purifying our faith. You know, sometimes we have other things we trust in, don't we? I trust God. I trust my friends. I trust my family. I trust the doctor. I trust this. I trust that. And, and when trouble comes, we have, we have a, a quick process by which we stop trusting other things. <laughs> they don't help me. They, they're not changing the situation. They, they're not delivering me. And so increasingly, our trust becomes more pure and more focused on Jesus Christ and nothing else. And so when I suffer, I need to remember it is a test. Something else I need to remember, the lesson when I suffer, how do I handle it? Rejoice and praise your way through it. Rejoice and praise your way through it. Verse 13, he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And then in verse 14, he says, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You, why should we rejoice? Why should we be blessed? Because when suffering comes because I follow Jesus Christ and I'm trying to please him with my life and do his will, when suffering comes like that, it is the greatest, one of the great markers and indicators that I am his. He says the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so how should I respond? Verse 16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Lift Him up. You say, well, Pastor, when I'm hurting, that's the last thing I want to do. It's the first thing you need to learn. You need to rejoice and praise your way through hard times. You need to rejoice and praise your way through difficulty. It's when you and I stop rejoicing, stop praising Jesus because he has loved us. He has made us his own. When I take my eyes off of Jesus and I put him on my problems, that's when trouble really begins. And the first thing I need to do when I'm in trouble is keep my worship white hot and keep my focus on him. Third thing. I want to call attention to is in verse 19 keep doing good and let god handle the rest probably the most basic lesson of the whole book keep doing good and let god handle the rest verse 19 therefore let those who suffer according to the will of god commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator Martin Luther was once asked, the reformer of the 16th century, was once asked, he said, someone asked him, said, Martin, if you knew that Jesus was coming back today, what would you do today? If you knew Jesus was coming back today, what would you do today? You know what he said? I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. (laughs) I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. What was his point he'd say i'd simply do whatever god had for me to do that that day it wouldn't change dramatically i would just fulfill what god had called me to do and and it may look mundane to you but i'm going to keep doing what is good i'm going to trust my soul to god he can have all the big stuff the questions i can't answer the pain that's overwhelming the difficulty that i can't figure out i don't even know what to do i don't know what's going on i don't know why it's happening but oh god my soul here it is Here's my problem, here's my trouble, here's my difficulty. God, that's all yours. And What do you want me to do now? You know, there's a grace, a favor, a strength that God gives to us he wants to give to us. Jesus Christ wants to give us so much when we're in trouble, when we're hurting. If you're here this morning and that's you, you're hurting. Jesus has so much he wants to give you. But you can't have what he gives until you receive who he is. And Jesus is Lord. Lord. Jesus is Lord. The best thing you can do when you're in trouble is not run away from him, and so many people do. The best thing you can do at that moment is run to Jesus and fall at his feet and say, Lord, here are all my troubles, all my problems, they're not mine anymore. I give all of that to you. I entrust my soul to you, whatever, you're the creator, you're the faithful creator. And you made me. You can do with me whatever you want to do with me. I give you my soul. I give you my life. And Lord, from this day on, for this day, I'm just going to do what you want me to do next. I can't worry about tomorrow. I can't worry about next week. I'm just going to do, Lord, what you want me to do next. What you want me to do today. Here's the bottom line. Following Jesus is an intense relationship that overflows as daily obedience to Him. It's a relationship. Seeing Him, talking to Him, reading about Him in His Word, listening as He speaks to you through His Word. An intense relationship. Starts in the morning, time alone with God. Ends in the evening, time alone with God. Praying as you go to sleep, praying as you rise. Talking to Him as you go through the day. An intense relationship. And in the process of of that relationship, what overflows, what comes out of it? Obedience. Sometimes the word obedience has negative thoughts to people. But you know what it means? You know what obedience is? Obedience is saying, I can't handle this. I'm not smart enough to figure out what I should do. I am in full dependence on you as my master, as my king. You know, that's all obedience is. is, is surrender of my will to his will. And saying, I am depending on you. Jesus did it, and if you follow Jesus, he's going to lead you to become that kind of person. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. Do you know Jesus as Lord? Do you know him as your Lord? You know, some people have said that they trust him. They say they've trusted him for salvation, but they've not trusted him with their life. They've not surrendered their life to him. All oh, they want to go to heaven, but they are not following him here, now. And to receive what he has for you, you have to first receive who he is. And he is Lord. Brother or sister in Christ, if you're hurting today, your Jesus wants to help, support, change, strengthen you. But he's not there as your helper. He's there as Lord over your problem. He's there as Lord over everything that would destroy you. He is there as your Lord. Would you surrender to him today? Whatever you're dealing with, would you come to him? Just lay it all out before him. And say, oh God, I can't manage this anymore. I quit. I give up. And I am trusting you. Trusting you. If you've never come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, there'll be pastors down front. I'll be here. Todd and Dustin are here. We'll be delighted to talk with you about how a person comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior. How your sins can be forgiven today. How you can come and meet Christ as a person who will come into your life and change you from the inside out. Our Father and God, we thank you for the truth that you inspired Peter to share with us about how to live in these final days and the last days. Forgive us for the days we've wasted. Enable us today to use it for your glory. As we respond to you in these moments, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be our leader and our guide. Particularly for that one who's hurting. Heal their heart. Lead them to a safe place. We pray in Jesus' name.